Are you seeking a better way to accelerate your sales, to scale your business, to live a life with no limits? Accelerate Sales Podcast features global experts who have cracked the code to recurring revenues with proven sales systems and get you on the fast track to scaling. Now let's accelerate your sales with today's episode. Hi, I'm Paul Higgins, and welcome to the Accelerate Sales Podcast, episode number 444. Look, you're going to learn the big difference to help you close more sales. You've all heard about the status quo, but you're actually going to learn about indecision. And you're going to learn three key reasons why there is indecision. And most importantly, you're going to learn four key reasons to overcome it and four key solutions to overcome it. So if you're a first-time listener and you love what you hear, please subscribe. We do help cloud consultants. And if you're a you know, someone that's implementing or making consulting decisions around implementing a, a, a SaaS product, well, you're in the right space. If you already are a listener and you love it, please always welcome those reviews. There's a summary in the app that you're listening to. You can get the full transcript at paulhigginsmentoring.com. It's episode 444, as I said. And before we go into interview matter, I just want to quickly thank our sponsors. The first is a Cloud Consultants Collective. So if you're a cloud consultant, and yes, you've got all the technical advice, but you're actually really looking at ways to grow your business, ways to scale your business, why not come and join the Cloud Consultants Collective where peers are helping peers to do that? The cloudconsultantscollective.com. And the second is a great video software called SendSpark. And it allows you to personalize videos, which I think is very important in the sales process, but it also allows you to do that at scale. So you can get six months free at paulhigginsmentoring.com forward slash send spark. So Matt Dixon is a Wall Street Journal bestselling author for three of the most important business books of the past decade, The Challenger Sale, The Effortless Experience, and The Challenger Customer. He's also a frequent tribute contributed to the Harvest Business Review on sales and customer experience. He's the founding partner of DCM Insights, a boutique consultancy focused on using data and research-backed frameworks to help companies attract, retain, and grow their customers. Previously, he held numerous global leadership roles at Tether, Corn Ferry Hay Group, and as well, the, the firm CEB, which is now known as Gartner, which I'm sure you've all heard of. He's a sought-after speaker and an advisor to management teams around the world, including many of those in the Fortune 500. And he does a brilliant job in helping you to close more sales in this interview. I'll hand you now over to Matt Dixon from JoltEffect.com. Great to have you on the show, Matt. Hey, Paul. It's wonderful to be here. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, no, doing great here. And you know, I feel like I've spoken to you so many times because I've uh, listened to, you know, I've read, read audio. Actually, yes, I listened to your book. I also um, have watched several YouTube videos on it. And uh, yeah, it's fantastic. I, I, I've never seen anything like it. So well, it's um, very kind but, of you said to say, I was going to say my condolences for spending so much time with me. <laughs> but uh, thank you, Paul. <laughs> no, well, I, you know, I think it's something that you listening to Matt here today really want to uh, know. It's um, yeah, it's brilliant research, and it also we're going to give you a great solution today. So why don't we kick off, Matt, with one of the biggest things that really 
stood out for me is, you know, 40 to 60% yeah. of deals are lost by no decision, right? Yeah. And that, I, yeah. I'd never thought of it. Status quo, I'm sure we're going to talk about that I got, but there's mm -hmm. no decision really stood out for me. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, the so it's a painful number if, if uh, you know, for any of the listeners who are, um, you know, whether you're you're an independent individual can kind of contributor, you're an individual consultant, and you're responsible for making a number, or you're running a team or managing a a larger organization. You know, if you think about that, forty to sixty percent of all of our opportunities are lost to the customer just doing nothing. It, that on in and of itself is very painful. But it, just to turn the screws maybe a little bit a little bit more, I would say these are typically customers where two things are also true. They've gone through an entire purchase journey with us. And so they've they've engaged in those early conversations, the team consensus building calls, the the demos, the proof of concept trials, the pilots, the back and forth on proposals and terms and with procurement and legal and all the sales prevention departments out there. And then they still do nothing. So so these are customers who will eat up untold enough amount of uh, your, you know, uh, the salesperson's time, the, that of your team. Think about all the solutions engineers, the subject matter experts, the product people, the security people, all the people from our side we bring to the, to the purchase process and bring to the table, all the experts we bring to bear. Um, it, to say nothing of the customer's own time in that of yeah. their colleagues and their, you know, so just think about that productivity sink. And then the other thing that I think is quite painful about this is that a huge percentage of those opportunities are ones in which the customer has actually stated their intent. This goes back to what you said before, uh, Paul, is their intent to part ways with their status quo, that they actually want to move forward with you, that they agree what they do today is suboptimal. And maybe the cloud solution you're, provide, you're, you're proposing is a far better solution for their company and they still do nothing. And so that was the, that's always been a vexing thing to me is why, what would possess anybody to go through all that effort and spend all those time, the time and resources to do nothing. And, and actually more to the point, what do the best salespeople do to avoid that? So, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I know, you know, you went through what two and a half million mm -hmm. uh, calls right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. To, to, to get to, to this, right. Yeah. So it's not as if it just popped out of one conversation, you done an enormous amount of research to do it. And, and yeah. I know you said that you need to have two playbooks, right? So there's a playbook for yeah. the status quo and there's a playbook for indecision. Take us yes. through why we need a playbook for indecision. You know, I know the stat, yeah. I know that it's the opportunity, but, you know, why do we need a playbook for the, for the indecision? Yeah, that's the crux, I think, of the the whole, but that's the, the pivot point for the whole book, if you will, and, and everything we found. And this is, maybe I'll, I'll take one step back, Paul, and, and explain a little bit of what, we see most salespeople do, um, which is if you imagine a standard purchase journey where we start with the customer's status quo, the way they do things today, maybe they have an on-prem solution, maybe they have no solution that does what your solution does, maybe they use your product, but in a narrow sense, maybe they use it uh, or they use a competitor's product and we're trying to get them to switch to our platform. That's the status quo. The first step in the journey is we got to get them to agree to our vision, a new way of doing things. And then the final step is we've got to get them to buy from us to actually consummate the deal, execute the DocuSign, sign on the dotted line, all that good stuff. Um, now, what salespeople often will find is that between the point where the customer says they're on board and when they actually get on board and sign between the, the gap between I want this and I bought this is often where things go sideways. And yes. it's this point where, you know, customers will often talk themselves out of things that they felt you felt were already settled uh, discussions, right? Settled decisions. 
and they'll start to wring their hands and hem and haw and straddle the fence and get cold feet and start to backpedal a bit. And the way this happens to for a salesperson is that customer who was once quite engaged starts to disengage. They start to ghost us. They start to go radio silent. They they do respond to our emails, but they do so quite intermittently <laughs> and in, in very with very curt responses, not in the the gushing way they once engaged with us. But uh, yes. it's it's like the the sense you got from maybe a, a partner or a boyfriend or girlfriend long ago, who and you're getting the signals that they're not that into you. <laughs> and so, um, and <laughs> so what, too what often, happened, unfortunately, not today, <laughs> I know it's a it's a bit autobiographical <laughs> for me too, Paul. But, um, <laughs> but you know what I think the salespeople will then do is they'll they'll continue to chase the opportunity. They they feel like hope springs eternal, and salespeople love a good challenge. Um, and eventually, their manager or somebody higher up says, "This is over. Stop spending time on this. Market has closed. Lost. No decision." But you know what's interesting is that point of where the salesperson feels like this is starting to head into no decision territory. What they've been taught to do for, or what they've been taught to believe, I should say, for a very long time, is that the only reason a customer uh, could start to disengage uh, and start to get cold feet is because they are still clinging to the status quo. So either they believe what they're doing today is good enough, or they don't believe your solution is a compelling enough uh, reason to change, or maybe they don't believe it's a top priority. So what salespeople do is they dial up the what we call the FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. My kids tell me I'm too old to use terms like this, but I'm going to use it anyway. So um, <laughs> the FOMO, they try to dial up the FOMO. They say, look, it, it, it happens in many different ways. One technique is I try to say, you know, Paul, you must have missed how robust this ROI projection is if you buy our platform, or maybe you missed these awesome features. Let's get back in the demo environment. Let me yes. show it to you again. So that's the the positive. Then we go, if that doesn't work, we start to go negative on the on the customer. We start to scare them into action. So we try to create the burning platform. We use fear, uncertainty, and doubt, FUD, uh, to try to get the customer to realize the cost of their inaction. You know, Paul, these problems aren't going to solve themselves. You can't wish them away. You're going to be stuck with this terrible status quo, and, and you are going to be the person to blame. You've got to move forward. You cannot afford not to act. And if those things don't work, usually we, we do a dangle a discount in front of them and say, well, you know, if you buy this quarter, you can get this price. But if you wait, the price goes up. Um, and so these are all FOMO-based tactics. And, and so it's not surprising to us to see in the data, we found the overwhelming majority of the time when a customer gets cold feet and shows signs of disengagement, salespeople believe that it's because the, the status quo has not been defeated. And nice. so they go back and they use one of those techniques. They dial up the FOMO. But what did surprise us, Paul, was that it actually backfires more often than it works out, especially with those customers who've stated their intent. What we found is that there's an 84% probability when you use those techniques that you increase the likelihood the deal will be lost to no decision. So you're actually working against your own self-interest as a salesperson. And we didn't really know why until we dug into it. And what we found was uh, exactly what you just articulated is that there are actually two reasons customers make no decision. One reason is that they're still wedded to their status quo. And that is a always going to be an enemy in sales. We've always got to overcome the status quo. You're not going to sell anything if you don't beat the status quo. But the second reason, it turns out the bigger reason customers do nothing is not because they're committed to the status quo, it's because they're indecisive about changing it. Now, indecision comes down to three fears that customers start to obsess over. The first one is they don't know what to pick. They don't know what to buy. They know they want to do business with you, but they don't know what configuration to choose. You've put a lot of options in front of them, a lot of partner integrations, roadmap items, premium versions, basic versions, contract lengths, narrow and wide, you know, wide deployments, all kinds of choices they have to make. 
And when everything looks good to the customer, that's a recipe for doing nothing because they don't want to yes. make the wrong choice. Yes. The second fear they have is they haven't done enough homework. So they feel like, you know, this is a big decision. This might be the only time that I will ever make a purchase decision of this magnitude for my business in my career. I cannot afford to leave any stone unturned. I've got to read all of the content. I've got to read the next white paper, the next Gartner or Forrester analyst report. But if only if I read that piece of content, will it, you know, uh, reveal all the problems and the pitfalls I need to avoid, and I will feel like an expert that is making an informed decision. And then the third fear they have is that they might not get what they're paying for. And so what that comes down to is, I might not see the benefits of this purchase. I know you're projecting this ROI. I know these case studies and your reference customers said they get they got this kind of return, but what if we don't get that? And what if I built my business case around those projected returns and we don't get it? Well, Worst worst case scenario, I could lose my job. Best case scenario, I just look like a fool. But either way, it's bad for me as a customer. Now, if I were to summarize what I would say is, again, in our research, and there's very robust social science behind this about why it's something called the omission bias, why people desperately, desperately are afraid of being personally culpable or responsible for making a bad choice that leads to a loss. And, And they get wrapped around the axle in the specific case of those fears that they have, that they might be doing something wrong. They might be messing up or making a mistake. And so the summary is, look, in sales, you've always got to have a playbook for dialing up the FOMO and and, and beating the status quo, but you also need a playbook for overcoming indecision, not for dialing up the FOMO, but for dialing down the FOMU, the fear of messing up, because that is the reason the customer is not moving forward more often than not. We found nearly 60% of no decision losses had nothing to do with the status quo. It wasn't that the customer, it was the customer agrees. The status quo stinks. Your solution is far better. And this is a top priority yeah. for our business. But have I chosen the right configuration? What about the things I'm not including in the proposal? Should I include those? And what if I later regret not including them? Have I done enough research? Am I an informed consumer? And do I have any assurance from you as a vendor that we will see the returns that you are promising or that you're projecting? And if not, you know what? At the end of the day, if I'm looking at missing out on a 10% discount or losing my job, it turns out I care more about losing my job than your 10% discount. So yeah, look, that that's amazing. Like you know, I've, I worked for Coca-Cola for 18 years, so I've had lots of sales training, and then yeah, you know, yeah. I've been running my own businesses for 11. I'd never really um, thought of this. Oh, you know, status quo, you're dead right. I think in the book you state, you know, 44% status quo, 56% yes. yeah. indecision, and and you know, it, it's like I've missed over half of the reasons why um you know it doesn't move forward and and you know I, I still mentor people today where it'll be the same thing right everything looks perfect we'll go through the deals each week so how's this deal progressing fantastic and then mm-hmm. radio silence right yeah and, and i never thought of the fact that you know you know the, the old joke used to be you know if you implement salesforce or you know mm-hmm. whatever you won't um won't lose your job right it's a safe yeah decision yeah, yeah. but yeah. i think like you said now there's so many options out there and this world is it's happening so quick and there's so much information it's like well yeah. hang on you know like you know am i making the, the right choice and like you said i don't want to risk my career over mm-hmm. something so it's sometimes easier just to put up with the the the, the status quo so i, I think yeah. you've absolutely not and if you're you're listening to matt and you think god this is like this is fantastic it's actually about to get better, right? Because <laughs> in the Jolt effect, he actually has the the book is an acronym. But like, yes. how do you solve that? So take yeah, us through yeah. now, because 
I think we get it and we're like, wow, uh-huh. this is a huge opportunity, but I really want to now dial into, well, how do I actually fix this, Matt? Like ha- yeah. how do I become a better salesperson to make sure that I'm handling this indecision better? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's really where the rubber hits the road around all of this. It's sort of intellectually interesting, interesting but the really valuable part, I think, of the research is we were able to distill uh, four behaviors that high performers use that average performers don't. It is their playbook for overcoming indecision. What's so fascinating, you know, just like some of your listeners uh, would be familiar with the challenger sale research we did yes. previously. You know, we didn't invent that. Best salespeople invented that. We just gave terminology to it. And and the jolt effect is the same way. You know, these these really gifted salespeople figured out on their own that there's a second playbook required. And and we were the beneficiaries of of you know studying those two and a half million sales calls and distilling from it the playbook they were using. So it's JOLT, as you said, is an acronym. It stands for four different behaviors, judging the level of indecision, offering your recommendation, limiting the exploration, and then taking risk off the table. We like it because it's memorable, but it also speaks to what's happening here, right? Because we're trying to trying to jolt our customer toward, toward action, toward a decision to get them from, I want this to, I bought this, or, or intent yes. to action. And that's really what's happening because if we don't jolt them into uh, into action, they'll get, again, mired in indecision and end up in that 40 to 60% wasteland of deals lost to doing nothing. Um, so, you know, in each of these, and we can, we can kind of go through them as well in a bit more detail, these different behaviors, because within each of them, I think are further kind of riddles and ahas about what best salespeople have figured out, which in many respects are different from what has been taught in sales training and what people have grown up believing in sales. Yeah, and I think you quote, you know, the the, the people that get it right, there's you know, average twenty six percent close rate to yeah. you know incredible sixty percent, right? So yeah, that's right, that's right. You know, it, yeah, so there is a real massive opportunity this. here because yeah. if you think of all the time and effort you're putting into sales and and marketing, you know, I think another great point you put in the book is that you don't have to do as much the hunting when you actually can just close the deals that are already in front of you, right? So. You're yeah. working less to make more. So I think that was a really good point that you you brought out in the book. But let's uh, let's go through these uh, four sure. four uh, quickly. So start with yeah. um, you know judge the level of indecision. Yeah. So you know one of the things we found in the research, Paul, is that um, you know if you were to ask your customers how many of you think you're decisive managers or leaders, a hundred percent of them would raise their hand and say, "Absolutely, I'm quite decisive." <laughs> Our research shows it's actually the opposite. That almost ninety percent of the study of uh, the calls we studied had customers demonstrating or uh, or um, eliciting either moderate or high levels of indecision. So they all think they're decisive, but the data suggests they're actually quite indecisive. But you know, indecision is one of these things that really comes down to basically fear of failure. And these are not things that customers are comfortable talking about. They're not comfortable talking about looking like a fool internally or or to their colleagues or, or to their boss or maybe losing their job. These are not comfortable topics. And so as salespeople, we need an, a technique to get these things on the table so that they can be discussed and they can be dealt with and managed. And then we can use them as inputs for forecasting, um, uh, disqualification, et cetera. Now, one of the the most important techniques I I think we discovered in our analysis is high performers have developed a very specific approach to getting indecision and these fears out in the open and out on the table. It's not open-ended questioning or diagnosis. It's obviously an important technique in sales. Um, We've got to be able to do great diagnosis. It's also not verification. And verification is a technique of saying, you know, Paul, are, are we ready to move this deal from 
uh, the buying committee to procurement or to legal. And what that does is it tells me, are you tracking with me or am I leaving you behind? Am I, do I think it's at stage five, but you're really at stage two? These are all important techniques. But the technique I, I think you should think about for getting indecision on the table is much like the technique or the, the approach that a surface ship, like a naval ship, would use to figure out if there's a submarine in the water. And so we call this technique pings and echoes. Now, if you think, if any of you have ever seen The Hunt for Red October, you'll be familiar with this, but when yes. we're trying as a surface ship to find out, is there a submarine in there? The surface ship will engage in what's called active sonar. They send out a sound, literally a ping into the water. And that what they're listening for is a reflection back. And that tells them, is there an object there? How big is it? How fast is it moving? Where is it located, et cetera? And we do the same thing in sales. So what you find is that salespeople, they don't say, you know, Paul, are you an indecisive person? Turns out that doesn't work out very well. <laughs> but yeah. they all, what they'll do is try to articulate the concern that they think the customer has. So, Paul, you know, um, I don't, I don't want to read into things here, but, um, but my sense is that you might be worried that perhaps you're overbuying here. You're, you're, you're buying too many seat licenses, and obviously in this environment, the last thing we want is for, for a customer to overbuy. I don't know if that's a concern that you have, but I do want you to know that other customers like you have the same exact concern. And and we've we've this is something we see all the time. And so if you, in other words, if you have that concern too, it's okay because everyone else has had that concern as well. So let's talk about it. Now, what that does is it either elicits from you confirmation. Yeah, you know what? That is a big concern. I cannot buy a thousand seat licenses and only end up with a hundred that get used because I'll get fired. Like we don't we don't have the budget to spare. Um or it it elicits a, um, a a redirection. So you might say, no, no, that's not actually our concern. Our concern is actually this. That's our bigger issue. It's the contract length. And what if this doesn't work out? And and we've signed up for a five year term to get this great discount, but we actually decide after two years this isn't working out for us. You know, and there's no out clause in the contract. That's my big concern. But what that does is again, it gets it in the open so that we can do something about it. So it's a really important technique for us in sales because. These fears of failure are quite personal. And again, without getting them on the table, it's indecisions like the carbon monoxide poisoning of sales. It, if it's if we don't, it's odorless, it's colorless, it's tasteless, but we've got to identify it. We've got to be able to, to recognize it, to listen for it, to ping and echo, uh, and to do something about it. Yeah, brilliant. So uh, we're listening to Matt Dixon and the Jolt Effect dot com and uh, his new book so you've talked about judge the level of indecision yeah. what's the o so the o is offering your recommendation now um options and uh, of course for your audience uh Paul, i think cloud consultants out there are quite familiar with the blessing and the curse of options <laughs> so yes. we love options we love partner ecosystems we love roadmap items we love different ways to configure the platform it's amazing and that's wonderful for marketing. And actually, is even quite good in those early sales interactions. Let a thousand flowers bloom because customers like that. They love that our platform is eminently configurable. Um, but when it goes from a concept to a proposal, that requires the customer actually making some decisions. What's yes. important and what's not important? What's coming out of the shopping cart? And in a world where everything looks good, sometimes our customers struggle with what to choose. And as Barry Schwartz, who wrote The Paradox of Choice, will talk about Options, again, can be a double-edged sword. They seem really good early on, but later on, when it comes to making a decision, too many options is a recipe for doing nothing because you don't want to make the wrong choice. And so what we found is average performers in those situations, they try to put the burden back on the customer. So when you as a customer, Paul, say, boy, this all looks good. I, I don't really know what we should go with. 
I will go back to my needs diagnosis skills and say, well, Paul, let's talk about why you first reached out to us. So what's most important to you in your business? Let's, you know, and what my hope is that you'll figure out on your own what's important and what should be in the configuration and what shouldn't be. What best salespeople do is they shift from asking to telling. And so yes. like a good waiter or waitress who you sit down, you look at a menu and they are saying, boy, this, everything looks great. What's good here? What they don't do is say, well, Paul, what are you in the mood to eat tonight? Because that's very unhelpful. But what they will do is say, you know, listen, um, this is my favorite dish. And if you're in the mood for something a bit lighter, I'd, I'd recommend this one as well. But truth be told, everything we make here is wonderful. You can't make a bad choice. And so what happens in that moment, and this is true in complex B2B sales too, is something called delegation theory. So when you do that, when you make the recommendation, it allows the customer to shift the burden of a bad choice onto the salesperson. Just like when that waiter or waitress recommends this dish on the menu, when you order it, if you don't like it, it's also their fault because you didn't yes. choose it on your own, right? Now that may not get you a refund or another dish, but but at least you don't feel totally responsible. And the same thing is true in B2B sales. So best salespeople will narrow up the, the consideration set, say, we put a lot in front of you. Here are three options I think you should uh, think about. These are all great options. One of those options, by the way, is doing is not doing nothing. <laughs> They're all they all entail action. And personally, I like this one. This is the one that customers like you get the most value out of, and here's why. So they yeah. advocate for a specific direction. And again, it allows the customer to shift the burden of a bad choice or the fear of a bad choice onto the salesperson. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. And you know, going back to my Coca-Cola days with McDonald's, yeah. you know, they did an enormous amount of research around three cup strategy, right? Yeah. And I know you mentioned yeah. it in the book as well that, you know, most people default to the middle option, right? But it is they do. That has yeah. a very well-known uh, uh, behavioral economics uh, thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, brilliant. So we've had uh, judgment level of the indecision. We've mm -hmm. had offer recommendations. So the third one is limiting the exploration. So this is this is all about. I mean, look, we know our customers are going to do research endlessly. This is especially true in in the cloud market, right? So, there's so much information out there, yeah. mountains and mountains and mountains of analyst reports and white papers and webinars and infographics and you know expert opinions. There is more information out there than and one person could ever consume. Now, when it comes to making a big choice, an important choice, uh, the customer is going to want to be an expert. Because you know, the old adage is true, caveat emptor, right? Buyer beware. And you need to leave no stone unturned. But we know, and this is very clear from the data, when salespeople simply indulge the customer's endless requests for more demos, for more white papers, for more analyst conversations, for more pilots, for more proof of concept trials, uh, for more reference calls, that is a recipe for the customer doing nothing because they engage in analysis paralysis, a much lower win rate we found when all we do is say yes. So how do we get the customer to stop trying to be an expert themselves and start trusting us as an expert? Well, there's, there's two components to that. The first is, the, uh, solving for the fact that the customer actually doesn't trust you because you're a salesperson. The second part is that they probably also don't perceive you as an expert because many salespeople are not experts. And so the first piece, what we found is, um, again, it's important for salespeople to recognize that coming to the table with the customer, they are predisposed not to trust you. And it, it likely has nothing to do with you or your company, but it's a function of the fact that they have been oversold in the past by other salespeople. They have they have you know, not done their due diligence. Maybe they've, they've got the baggage of a previous purchase in the same exact space that blew up on them and didn't, it went sideways and they're bringing extra level of attention and scrutiny to this purchase decision. has nothing to do with you, yes. but they believe that your job is to oversell them and to hide the ball and to not share all the bad information. So we found that the way that high performers will build that trust 
is that they will take specific opportunities, usually early on in the sale, to tell the customer things that they shouldn't buy. So listen, I know you're looking at the premium version of our solution, but I actually think for your use case, the standard version is going to be just fine. We can always expand into the premium version later. Or, you know, I know you're really excited about this integration, but I've got to be honest with you, it's pretty new. And the early adopters in our customer base have had some issues with it. We're working out the kinks and we'll get it ironed out, but I don't want you to build your business case around that. Let's have that be an upside uh, and let's plan for it down the road. Or even this, we found sales. some salespeople will even tell the customer, you know, Paul, based on what you're looking for, look, we'd love to do business with you, but based on what you're looking for and your requirements, I don't actually think we're the best partner for you. I actually think it's those guys over there. I'd be happy to introduce you. Yes. Those are moments that really build that trust gap because it tells the customer, this person is not trying to put one over on me. They're trying to get me to a great decision. And whether that decision is buying from their company, buying from somebody else, or doing nothing, their goal is to get me a great decision. The purchase is almost a secondary consideration or the sale, if you will. So you've got to do that first. And the second thing is you've got to be an expert. So you know, in sales, and especially I think in cloud, um, in, in just in generally in the SaaS space, I would say you know, most salespeople delegate their or abdicate their authority. And so they don't do their own demos. They show up with the clown car of experts on every single call. You know, the the product engineer, product folks, the engineers, the security experts, the CS managers, the executive sponsors. Everybody shows up, and what average salespeople will do is they'll say, you know, hey, I brought along Paul. He's our head of product. Paul, take it away. You know, and they just kind of sit back. High performers don't do that, so they are they lean much less on on other experts on their own team. And when they do bring those experts, it's very orchestrated and it's tightly choreographed. So I might ask you to answer a question, Paul, but we would have planned for this before. And I'll say, Paul, you're going to you're gonna hop off the call after 15 minutes. I'm going to tell the customer you've got another client call to go to, an emergency you've got to deal with, and um, you're going to go. I need the customer to come back to me. The last thing I want them is for them going to you for everything. I need them to see me as an expert because if all they see in me is a glorified admin, somebody whose only value is to get you on the phone with them, that's a recipe for a customer who will do their own research endlessly because they don't see me as anybody who knows anything more than they do about this purchase. And if I'm not, it's like it's almost like planning a trip to a, a country you've never been to before and you're working with a travel advisor who's also never been there and has never planned a trip for anybody else there. Well, you're going to do your own research. You're not going to trust that person to guide you because they're in a, not in a position to guide you. Yes. So these are things we um, we could do. And there's a number of other techniques we talk about in the L. Now, when we do those things, when we build up that trust, when we demonstrate our expertise, it earns us the right to tell the customer when they're asking for too much. So yes. when they're asking for that fifth reference call, it earns us the right to say, look, Pi, you know, we've gotten to know each other here. I hope you trust me by now that my goal is to get you to a great outcome and a great decision. I don't think another reference call is going to help. And I actually don't know if it's going to address the concerns that clearly you, you still have about moving forward. So let's talk about what those are, because there may be better ways to address those than doing another reference call. So, But only when you've built that trust and that credibility can you use a little bit of radical candor. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. So we've got judge level of indecision, offer recommendation. Mm-hmm. You've got limit the exploration. So what's the lucky last? The last one is T, take risk off the table. Remember, we talked about this um, outcome uncertainty as being quite um, uh, quite a big driver of indecision for customers, uh, the fear that they're not going to get exactly what they're paying for. They won't see the promised benefits. Now, the truth about outcome uncertainty is the seeds of outcome uncertainty are typically planted very early in the sale. We, we looked at, um, within individual companies who participated in our study, we had dozens of different companies, we found that 
average performing salespeople, again, in the same companies, would use gaudy ROI projections, very lofty, like once in a lifetime kind of returns and expectations. And that became the thing later that customers would say, gosh, I made the business case to the CFO off of this, like this really outlandish ROI, and I'm worried about not getting it. It was like a 20x ROI. If we only get 18, that's wonderful, but it's going to be my butt on the line because we didn't get the promised benefits. In those same companies, high performers were much more likely to under-promise and over-deliver. Yes, that case study, that company did get a 20x ROI, but a lot of things went right for that company. They resources to the hilt, and they got quite lucky, actually. I'd rather you assume a 10x ROI, which, by the way, is fantastic, and you're just going to be fine with your CFO, and anything beyond that, which I'm confident will deliver, will be an upside surprise. The last thing I want you to do is feel pressure that we haven't achieved our objectives. I want you to look like a hero, not like a fool. So again, we plant these seeds early on, but then we also think about creative ways to de-risk the purchase. In simple purchases, obviously, we have opt-out clauses and prorated refunds and cancellation uh, clauses, things like that. But in complex purchases, like in the cloud space, there's still lots of options for us. Creative contract structuring. Um, uh, I'll give you an example there. A big cloud company, um, we we interviewed their head of sales as part of this research. And he told us a story of one of their biggest deals that came in last year. It was a five-year, five-business unit deal for a large American manufacturing company. And at the 11th hour, the CEO of the customer organization said, I can't sign the agreement. And he was, this was supposed to be a celebratory call. He said, well, hold on a second. What's gone? What's wrong? And the customer said, well, here's the problem. Um, based on the evaluation and the trials and pilots and proof of concepts we did, in four of the business units, I feel really good. I think we're, we're ready. We can sign it for the five-year term. I'll sign it right now. But the fifth business unit, I'm a little bit nervous about. And the reason is that your team identified certain legacy systems, some unique data architecture things that you guys have never dealt with before. And I cannot afford for that to go sideways. And I certainly cannot sign up for a five-year term without you guaranteeing me that we're going to overcome those problems. And they're a public company that couldn't issue a performance guarantee. But what he said instead was, listen, and by the way, this, this one business unit was the cash cow business for the entire enterprise. So there was a lot of eyes on this business unit. Um, and he said, let's do this. Put the four business units on a five-year term. And on this business unit, let's put it on a one-year cancelable for convenience term. If you don't like what you see and you're not satisfied with the outcomes, you can cancel it and you're not signed up for a five-year commitment. But if you do like what you see, I'd ask you to true it up at the end of the first year for the full five-year term. After three months, he said that we put their we put our A team on it. They swarmed every problem. They did experience some problems, but they addressed every single one. A lot of creativity on the team. Um, they address all these problems. The CEO of the customer organization called up after three months and said, I've seen enough. Thank you for, for putting my mind at ease. I'm ready to true it up with the other business units. So yeah. creative contract structuring. The last one I'll give you, because we have so many um, cloud consultants here uh, listening to the show, is thinking about professional services. You know, It was interesting to us to find that even within the same company, high performers sold orders of magnitude more professional services, which on its face is not surprising because high performers sell more than average salespeople anyway. But what was surprising was the way they positioned those professional services. So these high performers would say, you know, um, I know you want to roll this out yourself. And that's a beautiful thing about our platform. We have the videos, we have all the content, we have the CS team. You can definitely roll this out. We're going to teach you to fish and you don't have to come back to us. You can do it on your own. However, I also know this is a big decision for your organization. And what I recommend we do is we carve out a slog of 
a couple hundred professional services hours, attach it to the contract. And that way, if it does start to slip, we have our A team there to get things back on track. So they position it as an insurance policy for the customer. Now, again, they don't give it away for free. They add it to the contract. It's a, it's an, an upsell. But the way it's positioned as a way is as a way to de-risk the purchase, to so give that customer the sense that they have a safety net that will help them uh, in their moment of need and won't leave them holding the bag. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. And, and you know, it's, I think that the key thing for here is just once again, moving it more to what's in your odds versus what's in their odds, right? And, and I know right. that when I used to you know, buy billion dollar businesses for the Coke company, we used to spend most of the time actually saying, okay, if, if I'm the, um, so we were buying a business. So mm-hmm. if I'm the seller, what yep. would I be going through now? What's my yeah. playbook? Like what, what's yeah. the things that I'm thinking about? What the risks I've got on the table? What are my non-negotiables, et cetera? Yep. I think what you've done with this book is done a brilliant way of doing a similar thing, right? You're really right. putting yourself in the shoes of the, the buyer and you're addressing what, you know, is 56% of the issue mm-hmm. is this indecision, right? Yeah. So yeah, I think it's brilliant. Right. So just to wrap Thank them up again, we had judge the level of indecision. We had mm-hmm. offer recommendation. We had limit the exploration and take risk off the table. That's your exactly. jolt. You got it. That's, yep. that, yeah. So uh, look, absolutely brilliant. I, I, I must admit, you know, I've read so many sales books, listened to so many sales books, but this is one that I was writing down actions and saying, okay, I need to go and do this, not just for myself, but mainly for my my clients. So if you're the same, please do Matt a favor for him giving you the golden recipe is please go and implement, right? So uh, what you can do is you can actually go and get the book at jolteffect.com. We'll have the link in there and also reach out to Matt and say what you loved about this interview. So go and he's on LinkedIn, go and connect, say that you heard him on the Accelerate Sales podcast, but also show him what you've actually implemented, right? Because that's why Matt goes to all this effort in the world is to make sure that that uh, we all close more sales. So Matt, it's absolutely been brilliant having you on the show. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, thanks for you articulating both the problem, but more importantly, the solution to, to help to overcome that. Well, thank you. And I appreciate the invite very much. And, and I just just reiterate, I really do enjoy connecting with with folks who've heard me on on a podcast like like Paul's or heard me present. And so definitely uh, don't be afraid. Send me a LinkedIn invite. Let me know you heard me on the sh- uh, show. And if you have a follow-up connection gr- uh, question, great. Uh, or just if you want to be connected and, and keep up the relationship and be a part of the network, then uh, I'd love to have you. So thank you. And one, one last question. You've got four books, sure. four yep. children. Is there a fifth <laughs> book coming or is that it? Four, four, oh four. boy. Uh, yeah, I, I think we've got a couple more uh, in us. Um, you know, uh, we'll see. It's always, there's always a big sigh after <laughs> getting each one done. And, you know, there's this period, I think we're in the period now, Paul, where we're realizing all the things that we we didn't include in the book and what we should have included in the book. So, you know, it's interesting. This Earlier, we were talking about judging the level of indecision. This idea of pings and echoes is actually not in the book. That's in our additional training content. It just didn't make the final cut. But as we've continued to study the data, we realize how important it is. And it's one of those, boy, I wish we should have gotten in it. Somebody said, oh, well, you need a second edition. I said, well, the first one just came out last month. So <laughs> it might be a little early. Maybe there's a bonus chapter. I don't know. But it's um, it's been a fun journey. But I, I think there's more. I think we got more yeah, more in the pipeline. Sure. So <laughs> Yeah. No, not more children. Is that right? Uh, no. <laughs> no, no. I'm a glutton for punishment, Paul, but I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Paul. What a brilliant interview with Matt, right? I just sat back and let him share all his, his uh, gold. And uh, look, I highly recommend going and um, getting the book, The Jolt Effect. Go to thejolteffect.com. It's on Amazon as well. But, uh, you know, Matt does a brilliant job in giving you the, the key insights, but there's a lot more in the book as well. And as I said, why don't you share, connect with Matt, say that you heard him on this podcast and also share what you've learned, not just to Matt, but tag him in and share it with all your connections who I'm sure are going to get value from it. So as I said, there's a summary in the notes. There's the links at paulhigginsmentoring.com forward slash podcast. And why not share it with others, right? Because as I said, this is something that I spent my whole sales career being oblivious to. So it's something that I'm sure your friends and peers are the same. So uh, they will think you're a rock star for sharing it. Check out our solo shows. Uh, don't forget, if you are scaling a cloud consulting business, why not check out our blueprint? So the blueprint is going to help you. It's 42 pages of actual, a like a, a manuscript of how to go and scale the business. You can go to paulhigginsmentoring.com forward slash blueprint. And the last thing, which I think in this case is so important, please take action to accelerate your sales. I'm fired up after today's episode. What about you? But hey, before you go, learning is just one piece of the puzzle. Now it's time to put today's strategy into action. Head over now to today's show page at paulhigginsmentoring.com forward slash podcast and share how you'll put it into action. Be sure to head over to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate, and review the show. Tell me what your favorite episode is. And don't wait one minute more to gain access to your pulse check at paulhigginsmentoring.com. This could be the difference between struggling to get more leads and making this next quarter your best one yet.